Good morning, friends. It is really a, a exciting pleasure to be with y'all at Edgewood Church today. I have followed Edgewood sort of from a distance for quite a while, but before Joy and Mar- Marquette got here, but I got really excited when I found out that this is where they were landing because I love them and I love this church and I knew something really cool was going to happen if they got paired together. So really excited to actually be here on a Sunday. Uh, Again, my name is Jeremy, and uh, y'all have had quite a stacked list of preachers for this series. It's it's kind of intimidating. I mean, this is what I do. I'm kind of a preacher, but I was looking at that list. I'm like, man, I'm going to have to do good or I'm going to look silly. (laughs) And so who's preaching next week? Uh, Awesome. And do you know what character he's going at yet? Okay, the, so I was, I planned some of this thinking about being at the end of, oh no, it's, it still works, it still works, but so we're, we're going to lock in on Zerubbabel, who is, and by the way, Hillary, we did not give you an easy passage, and you, you killed it. The, the trick with some of these Old Testament passages is confidence. You hit that name, it doesn't matter what it says up there. Say something like you're right and, and it'll work. I mean, so you had Hebrew names and Persian names and Babylonian names. Wow. But Zerubbabel is a really neat character to talk about for faithfulness for two reasons. One, he examples this really incredible provocative faithfulness. But at the same time, there's some errors in the way that he goes about how he lives into his faith. And so it's a really great place to end, but it fits, it fits anywhere. Zerubbabel is worth talking about, and I don't think he gets enough airtime. So I'm excited to hang out with our odd friend Zerubbabel. So you find him in Ezra and Nehemiah, which originally is one book, but we broke it into two. And at the start of these books, we have a problem. The, the people of God They're living in exile. They're away from their home. They're without access to their traditions, their land, their temple, their scriptures, their means of worship. They're utterly separated, outside, alone, exiled. They have been so utterly defeated that they are on the brink of not existing as a people anymore, just sort of dissipating into Babylonian culture and just becoming part of the empire. They had had it all. They were one of these great Mediterranean empires, but they lost it all. Their home, their connection to God, their special place in the world, it's all gone. Or at least that's how it feels at this point of the story. But God, at at this point in the exile, has begun to speak to the people again through prophets, both new and remembered. And so... We have verses like this rattling around in people's minds. Give me that first Isaiah passage out of chapter 40. It's kind of tiny on the screen, but don't worry, I'm going to read it. Starting at verse 5. Starting at verse 1, going to 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sins have been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain 
and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How about Isaiah chapter 2? The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They won't need them anymore. Nation will not rise up against nation, and no one will train for battle anymore. And then there's new voices like Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, we've got that slide too. Awesome. This is what the Lord says. Always listen when someone says that, unless they're crazy. Um, when, and how do you know? When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. People love this verse. It's great to cross-stitch on pillows, but it does involve 70 years in exile, so be careful what you do with it. <laughs> then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will speak, seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place which I carried you into exile. These people, they had had it all, and they lost it all. Their home, their connection to God, their special place in the world, all gone, or so they thought. But God had become, begun speaking to the people again through the prophets, and the word on everyone's mind was, soon. Could God really be planning to keep God's promises? A son of David would always be on the throne, that God would live with God's people, that all the people from around the world were going to stream to the temple and worship this Yahweh God, that the people of God are going to bring about peace on earth and the restoration of all things. And now, here in exile, in a place of utter defeat, the prophets have started calling the people to get ready for the promises of God. They're going to go back, and soon, they're going to go home, soon. They're going to rebuild the temple, soon. Yeah, I'm with you on that fly. Someone pray against that fly. Let's smite it. We'll have another shot at that fly. Uh, soon, we'll rebuild the temple, soon. We'll have a messianic king, soon. There will be peace, soon. We will return, we will rebuild, God will rule, the Messiah will arrive, the nations will turn to God. This is, this is the moment that we enter into with this story. This is sort of the, the place, the vibe, the energy, the feel at the start of Zerubbabel's story. So let's get, uh, there we go, Ezra 1 up on there. This is the start of this big story of the people coming back. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, that's a weird way to start a book in the Bible, spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem of Judah. 
any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judea and build the temple of the Lord to the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and all the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. It's time. We're going to fulfill the promises. We're going to go home. So about 40,000 exiles leave Babylon in this first wave. There's several waves of folks that come home. But in this first one, there's about 40,000 of them that head home. Now, these Judeans have been living in Babylon, living in exile, for 70 years. Most of the folks who were deported, those who remember the war, those who remember the temple, those who remember Jerusalem, those who remember the time before the colossal failure, they're mostly dead. They're gone. There are a few of the very old among this crew. You'll see them in the passage called the elders. But still, they would have just been children when they lost it all. All of these people have lived, if not all, most of their lives in Babylon. As Babylonians, they've learned the language. They've gotten a Babylonian education. They work Babylonian jobs. They've married Babylonian spouses and are now 70 years integrated into Babylonian culture. Even the first great leader of this movement, Zerubbabel, you hear it in his name, Zerubbabel. His name means born in Babel. He's one of these Judeans born in the exile. But God ignites this dream in the heart, his heart. Zerubbabel is called by God and has this vision to rebuild the temple and reestablish sort of the rhythms of religious life for the people. Even in danger, there's concern about going back. This will not be easy. Uh, give me Ezra chapter 3. Awesome. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem, all 40K of them. Then Joshua, son of, here's a scary name, Josadak and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shethiel, and their associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God, despite their fear of the peoples around them. They built the altar on it and on its foundations, and they sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both in the morning and in the evening. So the sacrifices are going again. The rhythms are getting reestablished. The priests are working. The people are reestablishing their connection with God. The pipeline for blessing has been opened again. As far as they know, these are the first real sacrifices that have been made to their God in a generation. It's an incredible moment in the text. And now as religious life and energy start to return to the people of Jerusalem, it's time to build the new temple, a house for God. It's really important anytime we see temple in the Bible to realize it's not a big church. It's not a church. It's not where you go to do this sort of thing. The temple in Jerusalem is God's house. It is where God is. It's where heaven and earth touch. For these people, it is the center of the universe. If, if you were to ask someone 
in, in the time of Jesus, if you ask them, where is God, they would not give you a churchy answer like he's in our hearts. Or God is everywhere. Or God's in, they'd give you an address. 1600 Jerusalem Avenue is where God lives in the temple. So they're going to build this temple again. The dreams, the memories, the religious imagination, the words of their scriptures about the preceding two houses for God are filling their hearts and their minds as Zerubbabel leads them to start this work, to start building a new house for the Lord. Words like, let's get uh, Leviticus chapter 9. Awesome. Leviticus 9, 22 to 24. This is the dedication of the tabernacle when God traveled living in a tent with the wandering people. Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the fat offerings on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Glory, fire, shock, everyone sees it together. Uh, let's look at Second Chronicles 7. I'll go from 1 to 10. This is the dedication of the first temple in Jerusalem that Solomon built. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not even enter the temple because the Lord's presence had filled it. It was so thick with God's holiness. If they even tried to go in, it would like kill them. This is incredible stuff. When all the Israelites saw fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to God saying, he is good. His love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord and the king Solomon offered sacrifices of 22,000 head of cattle. It's a lot of cows. And 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple of God. The priests took their positions, as did the Levites, with the Lord's musical instruments, which King David had made for praising the Lord, and which were used when he gave thanks, saying, His love endures forever. Opposite the Levites and the priests blew their trumpets, and all of Israel was standing. Solomon consecrated the middle part of the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord. And there he offered burnt offerings and fat and fellowship offerings because the bronze altar that he had made could not hold all of the offerings that they had put on it. So Solomon observed the festival at that time for seven days in all of Israel with him. So they, they dedicated the temple. They're overflowing in worship and praise. There's fire. The glory of the Lord is descending. And everyone sees it. This isn't, neither of these were some sort of private spiritual event. Every, this was a public showing. Everyone saw this happening. And in the uh, dedication story we just read, it was so intense that they decided they needed a seven-day-long party to process this. With all of these holy memories, this holy energy, holy words, excitement, passion, anticipation rattling around in their hearts, the workers start to lay a foundation for a new temple in Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 3, please. So they're going to dedicate this foundation. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with their trumpets and the Levites with their cymbals took their places to praise the Lord 
as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. You can, you can feel it. We're building towards the same sort of moment. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. When many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of all the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because they made such noise and the sound was heard from far away. That does not sound like the previous two dedications, does it? It's a little awkward. And then there's this stuff about the, the crying and the shouting. Like, what's going on here? The, the old, those who could remember the, the former idealized temple and the idealized nostalgic memory of their glorious past, the good old days, they may be thankful for God for giving them back a temple, but they see the start of this new temple and it's nothing like what they remembered from their youth and nothing like what they had wanted for the future. Some remembered the old, some had expectations for the new, and some just embraced it. This is a good word for the church post-COVID. Despite all of this angst around this new start, the word spreads that the Jews are rebuilding the temple to God, a place where God literally is, a house for the Lord. And their neighbors, the peoples around them, they come to see what's going on. Remember the promise? That all the nations, all the peoples would come to Jerusalem to meet and worship with God? The exiles have come home by the grace of God, as was promised. They're living in a time where prophecy is coming true for them all around them. And right here in front of them, here is another one. Uh, give me Ezra chapter 4. We read part of it earlier. When the neighbors of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel, the faithful leader, and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of the king of Assyria that brought us here. They are also a deported people. It's happening. It's actually happening. The, the revival that will change the world is about to begin. They have returned. They are starting to rebuild. God's rule is being, beginning to expand. The, the Messiah could arrive any second. And the nations have started to come to Jerusalem to turn to God. We're headed for cosmic reconciliation here. God and all creation at peace and end to war. A world of justice and love and nearness to God. It's all starting to happen. Verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord. The God of Israel, as the king of Persia commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to keep building the temple. They bribed officials to work against them and to frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus and down to the reign 
of Darius, the king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And these rejected would-be collaborators, they're now successfully thwarting Zerubbabel's plans. The project here to build the temple, it stalls out for 17 years before God sends prophets Haggai and uh, Zechariah to encourage Zerubbabel to finish the work. Uh, Give me Haggai uh, chapter 1. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord's people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the heart of Zerubbabel again, who's now the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, and the high priests, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord again, the Lord Almighty, their God, and on the 24th day of the sixth month. So that's it. That's the story of this temple getting put back together. No fire, no glory, no trumpets, no thunder, just a building. So the work is finished, but the miracle, the revival, have been rejected. Zerubbabel has gotten so wrapped up in his plans and goals that in his attempts at faithfulness, he has missed the miracle. All of this dramatic story, all the work, the dreams, the plans, all the organization and the building, the structure and the ministry, Zerubbabel has empowered and guided all of it. He's out there doing the work. He's encouraging, equipping, supporting, energizing, and leading the people to accomplish this task, trying to do the ministry, trying to serve the Lord. Zerubbabel is faithful. He loves the Lord. He wants to serve God. He's following the calling that God has put on his heart. But something has gone wrong in Zerubbabel's faith. Remember uh, Ezra chapter 4, the rejection of the neighbors? We, we read it just a minute ago. I, um, I obscured something. You can see up here, I put it in italics. If you were following along, saw a few of you with Bibles, you might have thought, this guy's changing the Bible. Um, I obscured something in the passage. Um, it doesn't say neighbors. Give me the corrected version. It says, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple to the Lord their God, they came to Zerubbabel and said, let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him. Does that sound like the behavior of enemies to you? No. They're showing up as faithful collaborators. But when the author of this book goes back to write down what happened, he can only think of these people as enemies. You see, Zerubbabel, he he has the kind of faith that I want to see in the church, the kind of faith that I, I want to see in myself and in my family. It provokes him to action. He, it leads him to take big risks and attempt big things for God. But at some point, his fidelity, his faithfulness, it shifted. He moves from being faithful to the call of God to being faithful to his own vision. He is trying to do what he thinks God wants, but his expectation for what the will of God is has become the object of his faith, and he can no longer see the movement of God in the world around him. 
his perspective becomes myopic, too small, too focused on him. This becomes a story about, about him, about Zerubbabel and what he wants and what he wants to accomplish, which leads to him getting in the way of him getting between the promise and the payoff. He is too busy knowing what God wants to see what God is doing. And Zerubbabel's story ends with him getting exactly what he wants, a temple, but he has missed what God was up to. We, we can fall into the same trap, right? Even in our faithful pursuit of the kingdom, we can get so wrapped up in what we think the work is supposed to look like that we can miss what God is up to. We must guard our fidelity. It is easy to drift from following God to following what we think God wants or what we want God to want. See, that was Zerubbabel's problem. He was so sure of what God wanted that he slipped into a type of idolatry where the work itself, the ministry itself, became the end, the goal, the thing that he was faithful to rather than the God who had called him to it. It is possible to be so wrapped up in doing what we think God wants that we miss what God is doing. To be so wrapped up in what we think we should be doing that we miss the bigger thing that God is inviting us into. We must guard against the Zerubbabel trap. When we prioritize our idea of God over relationship with the living God, we start to make our opinions into doctrine, and our preferences start to feel sacred. It leads us to worship at the altar of things like political ideologies, tradition, market, career, advancement, our own comfort. We must hold our plans with open hands, ready and willing to receive new things from the creator God who's always making new. We must hold our opinions with open minds, ready and willing to receive new insight and calling from the Holy Spirit. And we must pursue our calling with open hearts, ready and willing to receive who and what Jesus is calling us to love. Let's pray.